Well, good morning, and we're today coming to the end of our series we've been in through the summer, which means that beginning next week, we're going to begin a new sermon series, which is entitled Cast Your Light, where we together as a family of faith will be exploring and uh, seeing how the Lord would be leading us as ambassadors of the Lord King of heaven and earth to proclaim the good news of the gospel, and how do we prepare to do that? What are some some ways that God leads us in that direction? And it's a wonderful time uh, to engage in part of our mission as a church was to connect with one another as small groups are forming around this fall series, and if you are not yet in one, that's great. It's a great time. It's not too late at all uh, to prayerfully consider, is this a next step in your life with the Lord to see if there's a small group to become a part of. Uh, next week, so a week from today, um, in the Celebration Center, in between services, we'll have small group leaders out there that are there you can meet, talk with, uh, that meet in different locations and meet at different times because we understand it. People are busy, have a lot going on. We want to make sure we do everything we can to make it uh, possible for you to engage and grow in relationship with others as the Lord is leading us to become more like Christ. But that means today we're coming to the end of our series through the summer entitled Journey of Faith, where we have been on journey with Abraham, who is the father of faith, and we have seen how God has been leading him and guiding him and growing him and deepening him in his relationship with himself as the Lord God and his faith and trust in him as his God, his Savior and Deliverer. And so, as we come to the end of that journey today, uh, we're coming to one of the most famous events in Abraham's life found in Genesis 22, which is sometimes referred to as the sacrifice of Isaac, sometimes as the binding of Isaac. It's interesting because we come to this today, uh, ironically, about a month or so ago, I was at a family reunion on my wife's side and love her family and love to have a chance to get together with them. And her uncle, so I don't know, that make, was that make an uncle-in-law to me? I don't know how that works. Is a pastor. He's a pastor of a Methodist church out in Colorado. And uh, they preach out of a lectionary, which means that every week, you know, the, the text is given and you work out of a lectionary. And it just so happened that that next Sunday was Genesis 22, our passage from today. And as we were talking together, he was not looking forward to it. And he's like, I, you know, I, I just wish we weren't preaching out of this text. I, this text is so problematic. I, I, I just, it just shows how God, the, the moral… Call, you just, he was just upset about the text. And as I'm listening to him, I'm like, Alan, this is one of the most beautiful texts in the whole Bible. How can you look at this text and say that this is, you, you wish to be any other text but this, this text problematic? Because in my mind, it's one of the most important texts in the Hebrew Scriptures. So as we explore this this morning, I hope that uh, as we leave together today, we will be filled with hope and joy at what this text shows us about who God is and what God has planned for the salvation of His people. And understand, as you come into a text like this, uh, and as we read it, it may prompt many questions within you. And, and I hope that as we walk through this today, you'll leave much more settled about what God is trying to communicate here in Genesis 22. So our reading is the majority of that chapter, verses 1 through 18. And I invite you to stand as we read this together. If you're new to Cornerstone or uh, joining us wherever you are, uh, part of what we do in honor of the Word of God in its reading is to stand 
in honor of it. So our text again is verses 1 through 18. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw. Abraham saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, the fire, the knife, and they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the the fire and the wood, but, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. And then they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked. Behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of the place the Lord provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this episode in the life of Abraham and his son Isaac. We pray that because of your Spirit's presence with us, that you would help us to see and understand its meaning. Lord, apart from you, we're blind. Apart from you, we're deaf. Apart from you, we do not understand. We pray that because of your presence with us in our hearts and our souls, you'd open up our eyes. You'd open up our ears and our hearts that we would see, hear, and understand. Turn and be healed. We pray it in and because of Jesus. In his name, amen. So after that reading, can you see why my uncle had a problem? But what I hope we can do this morning is to understand how to read this text so that what we are understanding in its meaning is not something problematic, but something beautiful. This morning's message is entitled, Enacted Salvation. 
and want to subject, suggest to you that what Abraham doing is doing here is a prophetic enactment, that he is in his actions enacting something that is looking beyond itself, a prophetic enactment. It'd be sort of like, um, as an example, might be um, charades. You know, if, if you play charades, what, you, what you're doing is you're acting something out in order to point to something beyond what you're doing. You know, you, if someone comes and, you know, I was thinking about how to do this, I don't know. If someone comes and does charades, they do this, what do they mean? Three words. First, okay, I'm not allowed to say, you know, I could say walking, I could act like a dog, you know, you can say walking the dog. The point is, is that I'm enacting something that points beyond itself towards some other reality, and that what Abraham doing is a prophetic, looking forward enactment that is enacting what God will do in order to secure and to pour out the blessings and promises to Abraham, which then spills out to all of the world. He's enacting something that looks beyond itself. And I want to show you this in a few other places in Scripture. Walk through a bit of this in Genesis 22. Look through one other passage before we come to where the obvious places we will be going, which is to Jesus, and understand what this means for our salvation. So we're talking about prophetic enactments, where God uses sign acts where something is being acted out that points beyond itself towards some other reality. Many, many, many of these. I'm only going to point towards two, but there's… we just don't have time to go through all of them. One of them uh, comes from the prophet Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is in Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian exile or Babylonian conquest. The Babylonians have come into the southern kingdom of Judah. They're ravaging the whole land. They've come up to Jerusalem. They're besieging Jerusalem. That's the situation where Jeremiah is. And Jeremiah prophetically enacts something. Jeremiah does something which points beyond itself towards a future reality of what God will do. And what he does is he purchases land. Now, if you are in a city that's being besieged by a foreign power that's destroying you and ravishing all the land, does it make sense to purchase anything? Does that make any sense at all? But God tells Jeremiah to do it, purchase the land. And he, there's a, a deed of sale and everything. But here's what it says in Jeremiah 32. He says there, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, take this, what I, these land purchases, put them in an earthenware vessel so that they will last a long time. Because you're enacting something prophetically. What, what this is enacting is that in the future, houses and fields and vineyards shall be bought again in the land. So what he's doing is he's enacting something that points forward to a reality that God will bring. Another prophet that does this a bunch is Ezekiel, does a lot of these. And when you read Ezekiel, you have to feel kind of bad for the guy. All that he has to do, you know, you can read through Ezekiel and see something, you know, cut your hair with a sword, put it, anyway, it's all this stuff. But they're prophetic acts. Another prophetic act, we'll look at one other one, is from the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea is told by the Lord to do something that's a prophetic enactment. What is Hosea told to do? marry a prostitute. Is this not also disturbing in some ways? 
The Lord spoke to Hosea, the prophet. He says, go take to yourself a wife who is a prostitute and marry her and have children by her. Now, as Hosea is doing this, this is a prophetic enactment because what is going on is Hosea in marrying this woman told by God to marry is enacting a greater reality of the relationship between God and his people. And what Hosea is pointing to the fact is, is that God in his relationship with his people is the relationship as a husband to a wife and the wife, which is the people of God, are adulterous in their idolatry and worship of other gods and idols. So Hosea is prophetically enacting something. Does that make sense? Are you with me? So what we're saying is, is that Genesis 22 is a prophetic enactment which is pointing forward to a reality that God will bring about in the accomplishment of His promises. And we begin, we open this up in Genesis 22 where God goes to Abraham He says, take your son, the only son whom you love, your beloved son, take him to the mountain where I will show you in Moriah, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. Now, again, my uncle, he'd be going, this is so messed up. We want to make sure that when we're reading Genesis 22, we are not divorcing Genesis 22 from all that we have been exploring together over the whole summer, from the end of Genesis 11, especially in the Genesis 12, up and through where we are at today. If we need to understand that Abraham's relationship with God was such that he over and over and over again had seen God deliver him. He had seen the goodness of God. He'd seen the justice of God. He'd seen that God is a Savior. He's a deliverer. He'd over and over again shown the character of himself to Abraham. And that Abraham would have known and understand that the promises of God were centered upon Isaac. That's clear. God has made clear that Isaac is the means by which I'm going to accomplish my promises. So we don't want to divorce, and I think Abraham gets this. Abraham understands. And I think there's a hint in the text that Abraham understands. There's something else going on here. In in Genesis 22, verses 4 and 5, Abraham tells the two servants with him, look, we're going up on the mountain. We're going to go over there and worship, and we are going to come again to you. Now look at this. Do you think Abraham anticipates that Isaac's coming back with him? Yes. In other words, I think Abraham knows his God. Abraham knows there's something else going on here. And if you come back tonight, we're going to talk a bit more about why he would think this. But let's just notice Abraham fully expects for Isaac to come back with him. And just as a little bit of a tidbit here, Notice what it, on what day this happens, the third day. That is not an ancillary detail, not an ancillary detail. So he takes him and goes to the mountain, and we have a prophetic enactment. Let's just kind of think through this prophetic enactment. You have the, 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 the father who has the beloved son who is the child of promise. There is then a declaration of judgment upon the beloved son. He is instructed to go to a mountain where the father places the wood upon the beloved son who is the seed of promise. 
They go up the mountain together. There is an offering where the Father offers the beloved Son as a sacrifice. And when there is a willingness to do that, that overflows in blessing. Does that, make, does that sound like any other story? And that's what God says. Look, because of because, what I'm showing you, Abraham, is what I'm going to do. Well, I'm showing you what I'm going to do. And as a result of what's going to happen, all the promises that I've made to you are going to go forward. That there's a tidal wave of blessing that will be poured out as a result of what you are enacting today. Now, before we come straight to Jesus, because I think it's clearly pointing towards Christ, I want to look at one other passage of Scripture before we get there that I think the sacred writers of Scripture, and, you know, which obviously ultimately is the Holy Spirit who inspires any writer of Scripture, there's one other passage I think it would be helpful for us to look at together before we come straight to Jesus. And that is an episode that happens in the life of David. An episode that I think you will see very much is in line with Genesis 22. It's recorded in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 24, it's also found in the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 21. Now, we're going to look at 1 Chronicles 21, and I want to see this actually adds a bit of a layer to understand Christ and what's happening here and what Jesus does. This is the episode of David where he calls for a census. Do you remember this story? He calls for a census. Was he supposed to do that? No. Was he told that he shouldn't do that? Yes. Does he do it anyway? Yes. Now, God is not pleased, and he pronounces judgment. And this is the prophet Gad. The prophet Gad goes to David, and he says, look, you have three choices. Remember this? Of what will happen as a result of what you have done. Three choices of judgment. One is that you will experience three years of famine. The second is that you will experience three months of being pursued by your enemies. The third is three days of pestilence. Which one does David… Wouldn't you like not want to be David right now? That would be a terrible thing. But, but he was told not to do it. What does David choose? Which one? Three years, three months, or three days? Three days. Why? I would rather not be put into the hands of men. I would be put into the hands of the Lord, because the Lord is merciful. So David chooses three days. So the famine, I'm sorry, the pestilence, sorry, the pestilence goes forward for two days. Until what day? The third day. The third day, the one who's carrying out this pestilence, the spiritual being carrying out this pestilence, comes to Jerusalem. And he comes to a particular place. Where does he come to? He comes to a place that's called the threshing floor, I think of Ornan, depending where you find it. The threshing floor of Ornan. Let's just look at this. This is fascinating. He comes there, this is what happens. The God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. This is this pestilence. As he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw. Now remember, this is what Abraham did. Abraham saw. Same thing, God sees, actually he sees, we're going to see the exact same place. And he relented from the calamity, and he said to the angel who was working the destruction, stay your hand. What does God say to Abraham? Stay your hand. He's at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. 
you got stick, to stick with these details are important. Now, what is in the hand of this angel? A sword. Now, in Hebrew, that word is a word for a cutting instrument, could just as easily be translated knife. So here you have, at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, someone carrying out a judgment that God sees, says stop, and there's a knife in his hands. You with me? Now, David is there. What does David say? David says, look, I am the one who did this. The sheep have not done that. Take me. Let the knife fall upon me. Kill me and not the sheep. So what you have here is the king of Israel, who is the shepherd. And so in an ancient Near Eastern context, the shepherd was the king. He says, kill me the shepherd and spare the sheep. Now, what does God tell him to do? He says, build an altar on the place of the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite and offer a burnt offering. And when the burnt offering was offered, the knife was put down. Okay, where is the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite specifically? It's the exact same location where Abraham offered Isaac. Exact. How do we know that? It says in 2 Chronicles 3, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Remember, that's where Abraham offers Isaac, Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place where David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So what do we have here? Isn't that interesting? So here you have a proclamation of judgment where the Lord is carrying out judgment, where the, the Lord sees coming to the exact same spot where Abraham offers Isaac with a knife drawn in his hand where the voice says, don't do it. Stop. There is an offering that, it, that build an altar just like Abraham built an offer, offer a burnt offering just like Abraham did, and then there's the staying of judgment. But the difference is the king of Israel stands forward and says, kill me. Don't kill the sheep. Kill me. Do you see how that adds a bit of color into what Jesus does? Remember, Jesus, is Jesus' life taken from him? No. Jesus lays down his life, and is he the king of Israel? Remember, what is put over his cross? The king, the king of the Jews, and the king of the Jews, the king of Israel says, don't let the knife of judgment be upon the sheep, but let the knife of judgment be upon the shepherd. I will stand in their place. And now I think you have the fullness of what is actually being enacted in the sacrifice of the beloved son, not of Isaac, not the king of Israel, David, but the greater Isaac and the greater David, who is the beloved son and who is the king of Israel. One author who puts this beautifully is a guy named Stephen Dempster. He says this, on Golgotha, not far away from the Temple Mount, this latter-day Isaac, this beloved son, met his fate. There was no intervention of angels to save him. Only their intercession to help him carry out his task. Unlike the first Isaac, he was not kept in the dark about the project, and his questions to his father were filled with anguish, but finally submission. 
Like the first Isaac, he also carried the wood up the hill. But unlike the first Isaac, he knew the identity of the sacrifice. At the last moment, there was no reprieve from the death sentence as this father, like Abraham, did not withhold his only son, but delivered him up for us all. And this latter-day David finally gets his wish that the angel's sword would fall upon him and on his house so that his people would be spared. As Romans 8.32 says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how we not hostily with him graciously give us all things. Can you see why Genesis 22 is one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible? Because what Abraham is doing is prophetically enacting how God is going to save the world. He is going to save the world because the seed of promise, who is Jesus, is taken by the Father as the beloved Son. And is He not pronounced as the beloved Son? What happens when Jesus comes up from the waters of baptism? The proclamation, this is my beloved Son. The wood is placed upon the back of the Son as He is led by the Father up the mountain. The altar is built and He is placed upon the wood. And the King of Israel says, kill me, not the sheep. And the knife of judgment falls upon the Son. And because of his sacrifice, the knife is put away. Wrath is appeased, and we can have peace with God because of the blood of the Son. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. This is the gospel. And this good news that the knife is put away is available to all who place their saving faith and hope in this Son, this King, who stood in your place and in my place, this beloved Son who knew that He was the sacrifice, who said, let the knife fall upon me. Is He your Savior? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this beautiful passage where through the life of the faithful Abraham, You have demonstrated what You would do in the sacrifice of Your beloved Son, Jesus. And because, Lord, of what You have done, we have salvation. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not yet placed their saving hope and faith in Christ. Lord, I pray today would be the day of salvation. I pray right now that you'd be drawing them to yourself. I pray if anyone has any inkling of, I want to believe on this Jesus, I want this Jesus, the King who stands in my place to be my Lord, for them to pray along with me and say, Lord God, I deserve what fell upon Jesus. I am a sinner. And Lord, I thank you that your Son offered Himself as the King in my place. I turn from my sin and I believe on Jesus. I trust in Him and I will follow Him as He has been raised to live forever every day of my life. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.